Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. The UK's only All Things Union podcast, designed for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. There are times when you do crisis communications, right? So during the strikes, during the big campaigns, and then you're ramping up your communications, and, and then you're working really hard at managing the crisis comms. And I think you need the platforms to do that. You know, you cannot rely on a crucial piece of information being cascaded down through the union's tiers immediately. You just can't do it. Hello, 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 and welcome. Welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper, and the voice you just heard was our featured guest on today's show, Kevin Slocum. He'll be sharing his experiences and reflections from over a decade as the CWU's head of communications, followed by stints working for Jeremy Corbyn when he was leader of the opposition, and Bristol Mayor Marvin Rees. We've also got a fabulous Thought for the week from Glasgow's University's Professor of Work and Employment, Mel Sims, straight from the picket line, and left foot forward editor, Basit Mahmood, will bring us union stories you probably won't see in the mainstream media in his Radical Roundup. And great excitement, we've also got news of a great new show from the Union Jews Stable. Full details later on in this episode. First, a very warm welcome to Mel Sims, who's spent most of the last week on the picket line. In her thought for the week, she reflects on why industrial action is sometimes not only appropriate, but necessary. This week, I've been on strike. My union, the University and Colleges Union in the UK, has started one of the longest strikes in our history. And the issues are complex and overlapping, but mainly concern pensions, casualisation, pay, inequality and workloads. And of course, no one wants to go on strike. The strike will hurt my students and it will hurt the staff members I work with when I support their research. But disruption is, of course, the purpose of industrial action. And in that context, unsurprisingly, I've been thinking a lot about the core principles of trade unionism and of collective bargaining. And one of the challenges in the current situation in UK higher education is that collective bargaining about these issues takes place in different forums. And in some cases, it isn't formally collectively negotiated at all. So some of those issues are subject to national bargaining, some are function of local HR policies and practices, and others are an outcome of line management decisions. This multi-level, multi-forum bargaining isn't systematically organised in the way that it might be in some countries. So it's very difficult to know who to negotiate with and whether any systematic and widespread change could come about as a result of any agreed outcome. But even where there is a collective structure, such as the discussion around the pension schemes, in order for good faith bargaining to take place, there has to be confidence from both sides that there is both a clear mandate for negotiations 
and a commitment to any bargained outcomes. And across these podcasts, I've talked a lot about the problems that the UK trade union movement faces as a result of 40 years of deliberate decollectivization of industrial relations and the removal of infrastructure to, to support collective bargaining. And this week, I guess I'm living with the consequences of those changes. Good faith collective bargaining needs support and reinforcement, and I very much hope that the coming weeks allow for a return to that in my sector. But in the meantime, if you happen to pass a university in the UK in the next couple of weeks, please do wave your support to us. Thanks very much indeed, Mel. That point you made on the importance of good faith bargaining and the consequences of 40 years of decollectivization that put me in mind of the recent announcement by the Biden administration in the US of 70 ways in which unions could be supported by the US federal government. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine a UK government being so explicit and so positive? And can you imagine what it would signify if our own government were to do that? To my mind, the 70 things announcement is a sort of a benchmark, not that it's a panacea or that all 70 proposals are top grade priorities for the Labour movement, but it both sets and changes the parameters of the debate, in my view anyway. Strength and solidarity to you, Mel, and your colleagues as well in the UCU. You can find out the latest strike news and how you can show your support at ucu.org.uk forward slash HE disputes. Now for our featured guest, Kevin Slocum. I first met Kev around 20 years ago when he was first the branch secretary of the Communication Workers Union's Bristol branch and then the union's Southwest Regional Secretary. It's quite a journey that he's taken from there to be the CWU head of comms, but in many ways an even more remarkable journey from there to working with Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party and, of course, the leader of the opposition. Kevin was sort of playing Alistair Campbell to Jeremy's Tony Blair, if you get what I mean. But as you'll hear, being in opposition is a very different matter. So what skills and experiences from his union days could he use? But that is not the end of the story, because Kevin then moved from Westminster back to his beloved Bristol to work with Mayor Marvin Rees as his chief of staff. Looking back over all three of these roles, Kev's assessment of what works best in comms is one that comes with real authority. I also think, and I think I'm right in saying this, that this is something of an exclusive for Union Jews. I don't think Kevin's spoken about a lot of this stuff till now. I hope you enjoy this canter through not one, but three roles that are each fascinating in their own way, but not often open for viewing and discussion. I mean, so Kevin, how how did it all start? How did you get into Union comms? When I first met you, you know, I, I didn't. You didn't strike me as someone who was a born journalist or a born. I'm a communicator, yes. But so, what, what's what's the pathway? What's your journey into into this area of work? Well, I think that's interesting. So, and it, it, you'll come to one of my favourite subjects there, which I'll just comment on, which is, I think people often appoint journalists to do comms jobs, and I think they're taking the wrong approach. So, I think the two sides of the fence are very distinct. That's the first thing. And actually, I think journalists don't always do a great job as comms uh, or PR officers and vice versa. And I think people often look to journalists, number 10, and as a habit of appointing ex-journalists. And I don't think it's always a great approach. I mean, it's worked famously for some people, with Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell, for example. But I also think it's failed for some people. And I think it's a different skill set. Some can cross the divide because some people can do anything, right? But I think 
that's kind of how I got into the job as being a head of comms at CWU, is that I made a pitch, really, which said, you don't need a journalist, you need a union communicator. Yeah. yeah. And my view is I've been a union communicator for a long time at that point. So as a branch secretary and as a regional secretary, communications, people often underestimate this, but communications is a key part of those jobs, isn't it? I think you're trying to convince people, persuade people, inform people exactly what the union is doing and should be doing and how they can support it and how we can support them. And I think that's an organic process, really, in that I'd learned comms from the very beginning in the sense that trade union comms was what I did for a living. That's how I saw it, really. And that's how I saw the bank sexy role and that's how I saw the regional sexy role. And I think when you build support for a union, you build it through communications. I think people have to trust you. I think, A, they need to think, you know, you're on their side. And they also have to believe you can get results. I think you build union support through telling people what the union is doing, telling them what they can do for them, but then also showing them how you did it and demonstrating yeah. results. And I think that's all union comes. So when I was, um, as you know, I worked in the postal side of the union and I worked in the postal department. Most of my job then was comms uh, in the sense that, you know, you've got in those days 150,000 postal workers and communicating with them was your biggest task. And I did a, a pitch. I applied for the job as it comes, and my pitch was, you're getting this wrong. What you need is a trade union communicator. You need somebody who's a professional communicator and knows how to engage with workers and how to reach workers. And um, fortunately for me, that pitch was accepted, really. And my interview was one long elevator pitch. <laughs> the longest <laughs> elevator ride in history, yeah. Exactly uh, of why you should, you know, why you need to change the way you do comms. And when I took over that job, I did that. I kind of made it much more about, much more what I'd done as a bank sector in a regional section on a national scale, really, and tried to get the union to engage with its members much better, which trade union comms don't always do. No, exactly, exactly not. I mean, what were the challenges and what were the differences, if you like, of scaling up from something that was at first, a, you know, a branch level, then a regional level, but, but then suddenly uh, a national level? And... And in the course of that, moving from something that was focused on the postal industry to a union that had much broader occupational interests by the time you get to the head of comms sort of role? Well, I think if you, in terms of scaling it up, if you scale it back, when you're in the branch, uh, we had like 5,000 people in the Bristol branch when I was a Bristol branch secretary. But you could have a number of comms methods that you couldn't use at national level, right? So, yes, you're writing to people. Yes, you're communicating people in a branch magazine and so on. But you're also going out to gate meetings. Gate meetings is our big number one communications tool in Bristol. It still is over there, I think. So you get out and talk to people, right? And you can't do that as the head of comms, can you? You can't write to 3,000 workplaces and, and talk to people very effectively. So you have to work on your platforms, really. How are you talking to the most number of people? I think comms can be kind of boiled down to reach persuasion and information right yeah how do you reach the most people and how do you persuade them or inform them about what's going on or what they need to know or what they should know or what you want them to know in terms of comms and i think you in a national comms shop where you've got post telecoms financial services what we were predominantly mm. and trying to grow the union as well in in kind of uncharted waters and some of those non-recognized companies you need an you need a range of platforms i i always say you have, and it's not, I didn't invent it, but I'm a fan of it. I'm a big fan of 360-degree communications, right? Mm -hmm. Which, where you have a number of different platforms and you take people from one to another and you find which bit engages with who and you can maximise it for different audiences, right? So you can target your audiences with different platforms. And what I did 
as the head of comms at CWU was extend the number of platforms we used and try to grow the number of platforms we used in an attempt to reach more people. And so unions are based on two tiers, aren't they, really? I think you've got the reps, the branches and the reps, and you've got the members, okay? And you've got to use the reps as comms tools, haven't you, as well? Because you've got most unions are reps-led unions, really, and the CWU is no different to that. So you can, t- you can communicate with the reps and give them the tools and information to communicate with members and the branches, right? But you've also got a platform that go direct to the members, and they were some of the things I was most proud of, actually. The way we communicated directly with members was really successful for us. I mean, obviously, social media was a growing area. But we used online tools. I mean, in the telecom and financial services sector in particular, you can reach a lot of people online. It's much easier to reach people who are sat at a computer <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, than it is to reach people who are delivering mail at five in the morning, as they were in those days. And growing the number of email addresses and growing the number of places where you can reach people was a challenge we set ourselves at the CWU when I was there. We set ourselves to grow the number of people. And at one point, we had 80,000 email addresses and contact details for people. And then we were doing a weekly direct news round on a Friday, uh, which I don't think the CWU does anymore, but they use, I'm sure they use different tools. We used to email out interactive website content every Friday. So the website, we were trying to grow traffic through the website. We were trying to grow traffic through social media and take it to the website. But then we introduced direct and interactive newsletter, really, effectively. And the purchase of that was enormous. And then you're skipping the branches and the reps and going direct to the members, you know. Sometimes a challenge that reps don't want you to do that. Exactly. Uh, I was going to ask. It's a fine line, isn't it? Because you, 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 need, you need and you want the reps to be, to, to be on board. You also need to channel direct to members in case you get yeah. resistance or, or 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 there's no local rep in some well, and we in know some places, don't we? But we know some reps are better than others, right? And yeah, some for sure. are of course. And so, if you're asking the reps to be your communications tool, that's great, and they're your best communication tool because word of mouth remains the best form of communications, right? But you can't rely on it, and you can't rely on it across thirty thousand workplaces, you know, or twelve thousand workplaces, or whatever it was. And so, you have to have platforms that go direct to the workers, and some of the Biggest conversations I had in the CWU were that very pressure point, really. You know, a lot of trade unions, a lot of reps, like a command and control kind of structure. Uh, And we were trying to break that down and have a bottom-up communication strategy where we were trying to communicate directly with the members. And what we did find was the members themselves very much used to engage back with us. They used to get a lot of traffic back Mm -hmm. into the comms department from people who'd engage. And you can also... You know, I don't know what they did in the 1960s, for God's sake, but today, you know, you get a lot of data back. You get, you know who's clicked on stuff, you know who's reading stuff, you know who's gone from one piece of information to another one, you know who's read two bits of information. You know, when we did The Voice magazine, which was our national publication, and we also took that online, but, you know, you, get, you can get so much data online, and you also used to do surveys to read it, and you can tell that, you know, 100,000 people might open it, but a lot of those people are reading one article or engaging in one piece of information. And being able to track the people that you can take from one piece of information to another was the most important data you can get yeah. when yeah. you manage comms. And I think comms is a two-way process, isn't it? You're communicating out and you're informing people and you're persuading people and you're building in confidence, but you also need back measurement. Nothing's worth doing if you can't measure it, right, as the old thing goes. 
uh, that data is crucial, isn't it? Because it's almost like you you walk in a tightrope whilst you're juggling at the same time. All the time, you, you've got to, you've got to adjust your footwork. You've, you've got to keep your eye on all the different balls but in the air. Yeah. But you 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 need the data to know what's working and what and what isn't working. And yet there is yeah. still there's still only one union in the whole country that has someone whose job title is head of data. Is and that kind right? of, yeah, it's the Child Society of Physiotherapists. In fact, that's staggers me. So I, I think it's a key job. Yeah. Yeah, it really is a key job, isn't it? I mean, I think as well in trade unions, you're doing three types of comms, aren't you? You're doing leadership and information comms, where the leadership are cascading information, you know, and you're transferring information. But you're also trying to do change communications, aren't you? Which is there's a lot of change in the industries, there's a lot of change in the unions' messaging, but also you, there are times when you're doing crisis communications, right? So during the strikes, during the big campaigns, and then you're ramping up your communications and. And then you're working really hard at, you know, managing the crisis comms. And I think you need the platforms to do that. You know, you cannot rely on a crucial piece of information being cascaded down through the union's tiers immediately. You just can't do it. And in crisis comms, if you don't build a direct line to the members, I think you're going to struggle with that. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> Those are those are the those are the skills and the habits and all the rest of it that took you through what well, was more than more than ten years. You were head of comms at CW, I think, twelve yeah. years or something like that. Yeah. And, that and then then you moved. Being a glutton for punishment, you you then move and then you become you become you adopt essentially the same role for Jeremy Corbyn when he's leader of the opposition. Yeah. Uh, with, and that oh, that role has been described as um, the, the the leader of the opposition role has been described as the most difficult job in British politics. Yeah, and and, and 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 suddenly suddenly you are in a very different world. So what, what was that transition like? What, what that you took with you proved to be useful? And what did you think, oh, crikey, I, I can't use this anymore. I've got to have a change of approach. Yeah, well, some of it was useful and some wasn't really. Uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a different environment. I mean, John Snow, you know, the Channel 4 guy, yeah. in week one said to me, well, you've walked into the most white-hot media and comms element you've ever, anyone's ever seen, you know in the sense that Corbyn at the time was 24-7. I went there a day after he was chased down the road by Sky. In fact, it's a bit of an odd story, but I'd had I'd left the CDU and had a couple, a few, I was planning on having the summer off. And uh, <laughs> two weeks in, Simon Fletcher, who was Jeremy's chief of staff, rang me and I was sat in my garden. I was like, oh, I'm surprised to hear from you. And he said, <laughs> I think you've been out of work too long. I should have been the person you're expecting to hear from. Uh, please come. And so when I first went, it was all about the media. And obviously, I've done media communication, which we didn't talk about just now. But media comms is obviously also a very a part of the trade union comms. But I went there to do a comms role. But in the first three months of it, nine month, nine tenths of that was about managing the media, really. And then we managed to settle it down. And then we get into then when I got back into trying to use some of the principles from CDU. But weirdly, and here's the funniest thing, really. I mean, I'm doing three media briefings a week. You do a media briefing after PMQs, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very surreal moment. You know, the number 10 press team, you know, the press huddle around you, they put their phones down in front of you. You're on the record on behalf of the leader of the party or the Prime Minister dependent. Number 10 do their briefing to the Prime Minister's comms and the media throw 50 questions at them. And then they step, and you're watching this. And they step to one side and you step in that awful gap where you're surrounded by phones and and then yeah. they throw 50 questions at you, you know, and they're, they're blaming us and we're blaming them. Uh, and then we're going to have a chat about it. But what was weird for me is the best skill I had to deal with that was the skill I developed in gate means in the CW. And that was the greatest thing about it. Um, Tom Newton Dunn, the Sun political editor, 
in the Red Lion once said to me in those first couple of weeks, I know we can be quite brutal in the media briefings, in the, the huddles, as they call them in Westminster. And I said to him, well, you know, I've stood in front of 2,000 post workers who want to know when they're going back to work. And they're pretty brutal. And actually, it was very unusual that a skill set that I'd stopped using when I was out of comms came back to be my staple diet when Gosh, I was doing these yeah. questions. And that thinking on your feet and being able to answer questions, you know, was was a skill that I'd learned before. And the CWA taught me in the in the gate meetings, really. And that that direct in, in you know, you're doing the Prime Minister's questions briefing, you're doing a briefing after the Parliamentary Labour Party on a Monday night, I think. And then you're doing the weekend brief. And even if you did do that, you still get 100 calls on a Saturday morning. And so for that first few months, it was all about media management. And then we were able to get into structuring our communications a lot better. Really. And then it was about the same things. How do we communicate with people? You know, how do we get our messages out? And again, it's about different platforms, you know. Yeah. Jeremy's obviously got, he had huge reach on social media. And we had a fantastic social media guy, Jack Bond, who is an amazing communicator on social media. Uh, the best I've met, really. And we use social media. You're still using the media. But also, of course, you're able to get messages out either via the media or via advertising or via other message boards. And also you're communicating with Labour Party members, which is, you know, you got in the Labour Party office, in the leader's office, you've got Labour Party members as a an audience, but you've also got the British public as an audience, you know. Yeah. And, you're, and they're two distinct audiences. And you have to find ways of talking to the two audiences. But that isn't that different to the way you're talking to reps and members back in the CWU, you know. And so, you're, again, you're trying to use different platforms. Uh, but the media becomes a much more important tool for you because talking to the British public often means via the media. You, mean, you, know, you can have your own platforms and you can have speeches and you can send stuff out and you can get out via the Labour Party, people out knocking on doors, people doing local communications and things. So, again, you know, in the way you did with the reps, you're using the branches, Labour Party branches, Labour Party activists to get your messages out. But more often than not, you're managing a media message because yeah. it's so huge. You know, when you're talking about 50 million people, you ain't going to write to write. <laughs> so you've got to use the mass media and other platforms that you can use for your own comms platforms and to try to talk to a lot of people and a lot of diverse and markets and audiences, really. And so it it was, yeah, it was tough. It was It was seven days a week, 24 hours a day. You know, I don't know how people do it for five years. Um, I know David Cameron's. Uh, David Cameron was prime minister, and I was there. And him and Jeremy would face off on a Wednesday, and he had a couple of comms people. It lasted did two years, I think. I did just over a year for Jeremy, and it's hard. I mean, you're not getting any respite really. Seven days a week, twenty-four hours a day, and you've got a team of people who are always on call. I mean, the Labour Party media office is very good. Press office is very good, but you got that leader's office, which is a tier across the top of the Labour Party. In some ways, in the, in the way you've got the executive of the union, you know, which is setting policy for the whole union. So the leader's office is setting the policy, really, along with the usual conference democratic processes for the party. And you have to try and, again, bring people with you, you know, in the party and in the head office machine as much as you've got to get your messages out to the people. Really. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it just sounds like it sounds like the, those three points of leadership change and crisis are there. But before you can, before you can get there, you've got to manage this kind of hydra-like creature of of the mass me- the mass media Massively. before before you can get into the and the mass media is relentless 
you know, what you remember is, and what you have to think about sometimes is, they have a, they have, there's loads of them, and they do 24 <laughs> hours a week. You know, and there's rolling news. I met, when I met Alistair Campbell at the start of that job, because it was his job that I was doing, he said he did it, you know, he talked about, uh, he could hold a same bite for like a day. Hmm. We could hold a same bite for 10 seconds, really. Because you've got rolling news and you've got 24-hour social media, right? Uh, a line doesn't last. It, it's, yeah. it's life is very short. You know, and then there's a there's a twist to it, and then there's another question about it, and then someone else says something, and you have to respond to that. And the media, they have early shifts, afternoon shifts, and night shifts. You know, and our team was much smaller than that, obviously, and it's a it's a struggle to keep up. But also with German, I think this is a really important point, and very different to the job I do now. Is you're in opposition, yeah. Right? So every morning, for example, Laura Kunzberg and Faisal Islam, who was the Sky political editor, yeah. and, and Laura was BBC, because they got 24-hour news, they would have a number 10 briefing at like 7 a.m. And at 7.30, they'd tell me what that briefing was, you know, and I'd have to respond to that. Yeah, and every day you're responding to the number 10's agenda, really, because they're in power, right? And so you've got two folds, I mean, you're trying to respond to their agenda, but you're also trying to set out your own clear agenda. I mean, people criticise Labour leaders or opposition leaders all the time for, well, you don't ever tell us what you want. Well, it's not always easy because you're always responding to the government's tune. And also, when you're responding to the press, like when you're in a huddle and you respond to a question, you're not going to get everything right, word for word. But you have to be, I always say to people, you have to be in the right ballpark. You have to know the policy of your leader leadership to be in the ballpark for your answers, right? And then you can finesse and hone your message when you get back to the office, right? If, you, if there's a misstep, you know, if you say something or somebody says something wrong in a briefing and they, they're just off policy or off message for a moment, you spend two days trying to manage that. And then trying to deal with that and the noise that comes with that, both from inside the party and from the media and the people, then getting back onto your message, you can get very easily kicked off of that, right? Yeah. And in the CWU, I could usually quite effectively stay on our message and our plan. You could have a comms plan, you could stick to it, you know? In the leader's office, you have a comms plan at 7 o'clock and at 8 o'clock you're on something else. Yeah. And and that's impossible to do. And there's a lot more crisis management nonstop in some ways. Uh, I mean, British politics today looks like one nonstop crisis, right? But when the government's in crisis, it makes it a bit easier sometimes for the opposition. We were going through, obviously Jeremy was a very different type of leader to what Labour had for some time. And we were managing some of those of our own crises, really, as I would call it in comms you know, of the stuff that came with how the mainstream media struggled to understand the new Labour leadership, really. Yeah. And you have to deal with that in the right way. You have to get the political messages on that right. But what you're really trying to do is get back onto your domestic and economic messages as well, you know, because that's what plays well. And then the team changes quite a bit as well. So you're, you're constantly managing that in the sense that people need to be on message. So getting in that office, and this is why I think it is a really difficult job in politics. I think maybe it is the hardest job in politics. And it's the hardest job in politics for their team as well. Because to get on your message and stick on it is almost impossible. Yeah. Because you're constantly dealing with the people who are in power. You know, yeah. and they're announcing things that are going to change. They can announce things that will change. And when they've got a majority, they will carry a piece of legislation that you don't want. But all you're doing is having opposition messages. And you're not eloquently explaining your own journey to power, if yeah. you like. Yeah, and I think that was a totally different challenge. Yeah, kind of like exhausted just listening to you describe it. Actually, I just <laughs> at the end of that, at the end of that year exhausted. or so, end of that year or so, you must have been absolutely knackered. I was. I mean, I used to say because I was living in Bristol, working in Westminster, and I used to spend four days in 
Westminster and three days over the weekend in Bristol. But I used to say to people, I work four days in Westminster and I work three days in Bristol. I mean, there was no other time off. I remember this Saturday morning when I took the kids to something in Bristol called the Wild Place, which is effectively uh, a kind of cross between Longleat and a zoo, I guess. It's yeah. kind of wild animals out in the wild and you, you know. And I, I, my, your phone records, obviously. I was there for two hours with the kids. I recorded 89 calls right? wow. on a Saturday morning. Rikey. So I never spoke to the kids or saw any animals. And when you're in those crisis moments, there's no time. And you're constantly repeating a message because 14 national newspapers, 10 magazines, four news outlets, 15 radio stations are all calling you. And you're repeating the same message, right, in different ways because you're getting different questions. And when you're in the media storm, it's the media dominating the agenda. No one else. It's the media dominating the agenda. And... It must have been quite difficult for the number 10 people in recent months. But that's not my problem. But, you can uh, empathise, if not sympathise. I can. And I was exhausted. And I took a week off in the middle of the year. I went from being a consultant to being an employee of the party, of the leaders of And I took a week off in between. And all I got were calls from media saying, well, have you left? Have you been replaced? Have you moved on? And Because they thought it was another story. You know? And like, oh, I'm, trying to have a, I'm trying to have some time off here. Yeah, I was exhausted. And when Marvin asked me to come to Bristol. Yes, I was going to say, that must that must be a walk in the park after that. Oh, man, I took a week off. That was the first thing I did. I just slept. Yeah, and, well, you get more time to think, that's for <laughs> sure. And we definitely get, and also because he's in power. You know, you're making decisions that change people's lives. And But you do get, it's busy, obviously, and it's hard and it's long hours, but you do get time to think about it and you do get time to, you know, and there's a lot of people here. It's a big team, um, but, but also, also crucially, I mean, as a, as a proud Bristolian, you are you are directly serving your community, your community. Well, yeah, so. I've been pitched to me really. Included, you got a lot of opinions about Bristol. Come and carry them out. You know. Whoa, uh, excellent. Yeah, I mean, I had a job, and so the first time he called me, I'd said no, and then six weeks later, he called me and went, "Look, you got to come and help. This is happening, and this is happening, and you know, we need someone who can actually change, really change the way the place works." And so I came down, and obviously it's a cheaper staff role rather than a yeah. comms role. But obviously comms is still a big part of it. But getting stuff done is what we like to talk about down here. Hashtag getting stuff done is my favourite thing. And so it's more about, you know, I've had to learn about the processes that take you to building houses and building council houses. And, and there are lots of things you can't change that you want to change, but there's too many dials. But, yeah, you, it is different. Very, This is very different. But you're still bringing some of the same skills, really. And, you know, you know, and I know, don't we? We're old, don't we? But you learn skills through your life. You, yeah, you never stop learning. Yeah. No, and they keep coming back and you learn new ones, but you're still, you're tweaking the old ones, aren't you, as well, you know, and you're using some of the skills you got. And one of the things I, in this job, which I've learned, a great thing about both the CW and Corbyn's office is there were definite periods of crisis and you <laughs> learn to deal with that and you learn not to, you know, you learn to stay clear and to think clearly and you don't have to, you know, you don't overreact to things. I think that's a really important skill that I've learned over the years is not to overreact and to stay calm and keep your eye on the ball, you know. And that's been a really important tool for me in this job as much as it was in the working for Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, that anticipated a, a question I was, I was going to ask, but you've answered it already, which is if you look back over the three roles, what are the, what are the common things that have worked for you? And I think that, that point about, Keeping keeping your eyes on the ball and 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 creating space and time, yeah, to, to, to make sure you can say what you want to say rather than what you're being yeah. pressured to say is. I think that's yeah. absolutely essential. 
And one of the things I've really learned is, is actually not to pay too much attention to the noise. Yeah. I mean, in yeah. Jeremy's office, there was a lot of noise. Right? There's a lot of noise here too. But if it's not important, don't deal with it because actually it'll still be there. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yes. And it's a bit like that thing where if you have an argument with someone on, if you have a disagreement with someone on Twitter, a minute later, you're having a disagreement with a thousand people. Aren't you? And what's the point in doing that? So, yeah. you know, get back to your message, get back to what you're doing, get back to getting stuff done. And I do think those skills of learning to deal with periods of pressure and crisis and staying focused on the ball and staying on your message. I mean, the, the year I spent with Jeremy, staying on our message was our biggest challenge. And that's still the case here as well. But you have learned skills undoubtedly, which make you keep telling your story and yeah. keep telling people what it is you're trying to do and, and keep doing it. And then people, you know, Marvin's election was a great moment. The great thing about politics is you do get judged, right? You get measured. And when Marvin won his election, that was a, a brilliant moment for us because it feels like people aren't necessarily saying, hey, you're doing a great job, but they're saying, yeah, okay, carry on. Yeah. And that, 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 that feels rewarding to me. I think if you're a politician, you get re-elected. It's the biggest challenge ever, isn't it, getting re-elected? Yeah. There's a councillor of the opposition who, when Marvin was the mayor in the first term, said to him publicly in the chamber, anyone can get elected. What are we can? Anyone can get elected. Getting re-elected is the biggest test in politics. And he might be right, actually. And once you've done a term, people are judging you on what, not yeah. what you say, but what you do, right? Yeah, indeed. And so getting stuff done is what it's all about. And he won that election very quite convincingly, really. You know, I think that quite a good measurement. Things need to be measured. I'm a big fan of measurement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All the time, you know, if you can't measure it, don't do it. And I think elections are great for that, as well as obviously the cornerstone of democracy. They're great for measuring your effectiveness and how well you're doing. Brilliant. Well, uh, just before before we go, can I invite you to kind of look back just one more time at the at the your union days, and and what was you know what was the what was the sweetest win? Not the sweetest win was defeating Mandelson's privatisation. <laughs> Billy Hayes, um, as this great, you know, the former general secretary of the CWU, as this great line where somebody said, uh, I think it was, it was, it might have been Cable actually or Mandelson, but someone said the CWU used every trick in the book to defeat us, and uh, he was very proud of that, and so am I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. when you've got the Labour government trying to privatise the post, that seemed like something, you know, that was a real challenge for us, and it felt great. To win yeah. it, and the day that that legislation was pulled, you know, there's lots of wins in the CDBU, and there's lots of frustrations that you don't always win, do you? You know, you have to compromise, or you have to take your defeat on the chin. But that was a sweet win, you know. And uh, and obviously, Mandelson at that time was seen as a kind of demigod who could do anything he wanted. And so, the, and you know, obviously, it wasn't down to me, but the union as a whole came together enormously, and all sides of the union as well. You know, there's a lot of support. And a lot of work done by people in the telecom and financial services yeah. section of the campaign. John Colbert, my former deputy in the comms department, and I did a, you know, we did tours from John O'Groats to Land's End in a white van. I mean, I like to call John the postcard and balloon man. You know, you take a postcard and balloon everywhere. And we won, you know, with the support of tens of thousands of reps and members of the CWU. And we motivated and mobilized an incredible campaign. as a campaign that I'm proud to have been a part of. And beating, you know, a very strong government at that time was, yeah, it was a real win. That, that felt sweet. Yeah. I must admit, hey, we cracked open a bottle today that uh, <laughs> was cool. Excellent. I've, there's a book in there, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Kev, it's been finding the time to write it is the problem. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. (laughs) Kev, it's been great, great to see you to chat to you. Really nice to see you again, Simon. Thanks. Thank thank you so much, and good luck. Good luck to you and Marvin going forward. Thanks a lot. See you soon. My thanks to Kevin for being so candid and so thoughtful, and I really hope you enjoyed that. I'm sure there'll be lots and lots of views about what he said. I just need to update you about the head of data role at the CSP that Kevin and I touched on in our discussion. That is, of course, Jenny Andrew, and a Union Jews podcast featuring her talking about her role is available from your favourite podcast platform. It's also soon not to be unique, as Unison are currently advertising for their own Data Supremo, and I'm sure they won't be the last to do so. If you've got views or experiences in Union comms that you'd like to share, techniques and campaigns that went particularly well or that tanked for whatever reason, please do get in touch. You can contact us by email at unionjews at makesyouthink.com or on Twitter at JewsUnion. Now it's time for the Radical Roundup. Thank you to everyone who got in touch to say how much they enjoyed the longer, more conversational format for this that we tried in our last episode. We'll certainly be doing it that way again. Meanwhile, what have you got for us this week, Bazet? Thank you so much, Simon. Now, the first story we've got is about pay rises and inflation. Now, as inflation soars, the leader of Unite, Sharon Graham, has reiterated demands for pay increases to combat the brutal cost of living crisis. Now, this comes after the governor of the Bank of England urged workers to show some pay restraint amid rising inflation. That was met with a backlash. And Unite General Secretary Sharon Graham says that soaring inflation is not the fault of workers it is not a crisis of their making, so why should workers be made to pay for it? She adds that it's a national disgrace that some workers in this country have to choose between heating and eating while profits rain down in boardrooms. She says that Unite will continue to demand significant pay increases to combat the brutal cost of living crisis because we must restore some fairness to working life in the UK. Now, secondly, the TUC has warned that the government is not doing enough to create new green jobs. Now, official figures published last week by the ONS showed that there were 28,000 fewer jobs in zero-carbon energy and energy-efficient industries than in 2014. This is despite the industry's exports increasing by more than a third in the same period. ONS figures released today confirmed that jobs in energy-efficient products manufacturing are down by 32,000 or more than a quarter since 2014. Jobs in offshore wind energy are down by 2,300 or nearly one-third. With the overall downward trend in the numbers of green jobs, the TUC says that the government is letting down working people who back action on climate change, but are not confident that the current government is creating enough green jobs. And finally, an ASDRA strike has moved closer after thousands of distribution staff turned down a pay deal. Almost 70% of the 8,000 GMB members poll turned down the below inflation pay offer, and nearly 80% of the warehouse and clerical workers and LGV drivers said they were ready to take industrial action over pay. That's all from me this week. Thank you so much. And you can find a full Radical Roundup on Wednesday at Left Foot Forward. Over to you, Simon. Many thanks for that, Bassett. Much appreciated. You know, that, that call for pay restraint by Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey, that's fast becoming this year's biggest case of things I wish I'd never said. And the ONS report showing how so far the green jobs revolution is at best stuck in second gear despite the TUC report showing most workers back the move to greener jobs. 
if ever there was a clarion call, a need for decisive government action here, this is it. And on such an important issue as well, we can but hope, I suppose. Um, Asda certainly seems to have shot itself in the foot, given the scale of the GMB's response, described as an overwhelming rejection of the company's pay offer. I hope uh, the two sides can sort out a negotiated settlement that fairly rewards and compensates GMB members who are working for Asda. Don't forget that a thing called Strike Map shows you in real time where industrial action is taking place in the UK. It is a great, great resource. So if you haven't visited yet, head over to strikemap.wordpress.com. I guarantee you'll be impressed. Now, that new show I mentioned at the head of this episode. Well, take a listen to this. Get ready for Union Days. Stories from a Union Scrapbook. Growing up, kids wanted to be astronauts, footballers, scientists, shop owners. But I knew I wanted to be part of the union world. Part of the struggle for better jobs, safer conditions, greater equality. So, since the 80s, I've worked in and for unions all my working life. It's been a huge privilege and a great experience. Vets, cops, lawyers, medics, footballers' wives all get to tell their tales. Now it's the turn of a union rep to open the scrapbook of stories. Oh, the people, places, scraps, scrapes, tall tales and low blows. It's the stuff of life. I can't wait to share these stories with you. Who knows? You might see yourself in some of them. In fact, you probably will. Union Days. Stories from a union scrapbook. Coming soon to your favourite podcast platform. Yes, I'll be opening up my union scrapbook later this year with a short series of six episodes featuring a cast that includes... Artificial inseminators, botanists, spies, diplomats, posties, telecom engineers and the Prime Minister of Pakistan. These stories take us from Glasgow's abattoir via Kew Gardens to a nationwide tour with a loaf of white sliced bread. Hmm. Union Days will be available on all good podcast platforms and I reckon that's your summer listening all sorted. Well, that's just about all we have time for. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard and that it's provided food for thought, that it's made you think. As ever, if you've got a point of view on anything you've heard or you've got ideas for people or issues we should cover on the show, do, do let us know. You can email the show at unionjews at makesyouthink.com or tweet us at jewsunion. The companion blog for this episode is over on the makesyouthink.com site right now. Just click on the blogs tab on the front page And there it will be. All the links, signposting and background you need to follow up any of the things we've been talking about over the last 40 minutes or so. So big thanks to Kevin, to Mel and to Bazit and to my fellow Labour Movement podcasters who are part of the Labour Radio Podcast Network, a portal through which you can access over a 100 shows. LabourRadioNetwork.org is where you need to go for that. But above all, My thanks to you for choosing to spend some of your valuable time with us. That's very much appreciated. Union Jews is taking a little break. 
Don't forget to look out for Union Days once we get into springtime. Solidarity to those taking action to protect their terms and conditions and jobs. Stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time on Union G. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.